welcome to CAD Speaker Series Podcast. This week, Tim McNaught, Research Fellow here at CAD, will be interviewing Duncan Green, Oxfam Strategic Advisor, London School of Economics Professor of International Development and author. Duncan just delivered a talk on his latest book, How Change Happens, which discusses how political and social change takes place and the role of individuals and organizations in influencing that change. Duncan, on behalf of CID, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. First, congratulations on the publication of your new book. This is a huge topic that you've chosen to tackle. So I'd like to start by asking, what inspired you to write this book, and what are the key messages about how change happens that you would like people to take away? I think the book emerged out of the last book. So um, for the first edition of From Poverty to Power, I wrote a little annex called How Change Happens. It was supposed to be in the book, but the editor said it wasn't good enough, and so we just put it right at the end of the book. But it, it was the start of trying to think about how change happens as a, as a, in a systemic way, about how change is a property of different systems, and that we need to get better at understanding how it emerges before we understand how we can influence it. So it was starting to think of change as a separate thing, I suppose, um, was the last book. And then since then, I've spent a lot of time in various debates within the aid and development community on things like theories of change, on systems thinking, on how we understand power. And this book kind of tries to bring it all together and say, if you understand the system and you understand it in terms of power, then you can start becoming a more effective change agent. Okay. Yeah, you touched on this power assist. And I mean, your theory of change is this power and systems approach. Um, so could you maybe expand more about what that means? Yeah. So, so, I mean, let's take them separately. So systems are uh, large assemblies of interconnected actors and players and objects. Um, and the properties of systems is that they don't behave like a bunch of single things behaving separately. There are, so just as you know, a university has an identity separate and more continuous than its particular members or students or faculty, or the human body has, a, has, a, has a, an identity which is separate from its individual cells. So systems have a quality about them in terms of how they change and, and, and what they do that is different from their individual units. So thinking in systems means being comfortable with thinking about the properties of the overall system rather than always trying to disaggregate everything into the individual bits. Because when you do that, you miss out some of the most important qualities of the system. That's a bit abstract, but um, uh, there, there are some great books, a book called Thinking in Systems by Donella Meadows, which kind of spell that out in a really convincing way. And then power. Power, I, I, I've come to believe that power is kind of the underlying false field of development. The power is what connects people and communities and, uh, uh, and regions within a, within a uh, country, um, connects countries. And that if you think about development in Amartya Sen's sense of the sort of freedoms to be and to do, power is the way that those freedoms get change over time. And trying to make power visible so that you can then act upon it seems to me a kind of almost like a, a, the underlying common quality of many different approaches to change. So the book spends a bit of time looking at different frameworks, ways to understand power, and how to make power visible as a kind of essential first step for, a, for any activist. When you say activist, so who, who did you really write this book for? I mean, who are the change agents? Um, is it the typical like, climate change activists that we're thinking about, or are you thinking more of a wider audience? I think when you're writing a book, it's helpful to have particular people in mind who you're writing for. 
Um, so I was writing for my colleagues at Oxfam. I was writing for my son, who's a community organiser in South London. But I was also writing for some of the people I've worked with in government or in the private sector who are trying to bring about change in their systems. So I've worked with supermarkets, garment companies, pension funds, um, civil servants. And one of the interesting things about, about the research for the book is, is, is realising that they all actually face very similar challenges and the dynamics of change in those different institutions are often very similar. You have champions, you have moments of opportunity, you have alliances, you have you know, certain kinds of evidence or cer that persuades people, certain kinds doesn't. Um, you know, th there's a lot in common between those different places. So after I mean, writing this book, are you uh, more optimistic about the state of the world and how people's lives can be improved through this coordinated action? I mean, it's hard not to be optimistic when you work for an organization that works with grassroots communities because there's always such dynamism and such, so many fantastic stories. So, so um, I think it's quite easy to be optimistic if you work for Oxfam or, or another organization like that. I'm optimistic also because I've become more interested in history, sign of advancing age, I think. And once you take a historical perspective, it's quite extraordinary the progress over the last 70 years since decolonization. And we lose sight of that because we're always engaged in the struggles of the moment. We're engaged with the threats of the moment. And it's helpful to stand back and just say, wow, things are really much better than they were. Yeah, no, when you mention history, I, you know, in your book, you also mention the, the importance of being a reflectivist how you know, some activists want to jump straight to action well, versus the other extreme of kind of getting stuck in an analysis paralysis of kind of over-planning. So could you expand more on what you mean by being a reflectivist? Yeah, so the sort of archetype of, a, of um, uh, someone who's an activist without thinking is Hermione in Harry Potter. Okay? So Hermione sets up the elf liberation front, the elf, without asking any elves. Right? And then the elves say, why are you trying to make us lose our jobs? And there's an enormous backlash against her for being a really bad activist. If she was a reflectivist, she would think, what do I know about elves and their lives? Not very much. So I'm going to go and actually sit down and talk to some elves about what worries them and see whether I can build a campaign based on their concerns. So she does the exact opposite of that. So the book is saying we mustn't be like Hermione. We've got to be a kind of, uh, we've got to go and listen to elves first before we start thinking and preferably have the elves in charge of the change process um, rather than Hermione coming in as this kind of great hope from outside. So, um, sorry to use Harry Potter, but it's a kind of useful shorthand. <laughs> you also write about how change often happens in these sudden, unforeseeable jumps. And in your research, you, you mention crises as critical junctures. So how, how do you see that activists can use these events to make change? And can they prepare for them? So if you're an activist you want, and you want to bring about change, then you should think, when is change most likely to happen? And how do I get ready for that? Because change isn't a kind of constant. There are moments of opportunity, and these critical junctures are when the status quo is shaken up by something, and that's when change is possible. So if you're working on climate change, you spend years banging your head against a brick wall, no one wants to know, and then there's a flood in New York or a flood in, uh, in, in the west of England, and suddenly the media's interested, politicians think they've got to say something about climate change, that's your chance. So you can prepare for that to up, up to a point. So you know there are going to be weather events. So you can think ahead of the weather events, who are the, what are the alliances I can construct? Who do I want to go out with the day after the weather event? Can I write the paper 90% and then just finish the 10% in light of the particular nature of the event? And how quickly can I get out there into the public debate during that brief window of opportunity around the weather event? And I don't think we do that nearly enough. We tend to be taken by surprise by these things, even when they're semi-predictable, like a like like the example I just gave. Then there are other examples which are entirely unpredictable, like the global financial crisis. Um, 
And there the challenge is, how good are we, or the Arab Spring, and the, the challenge there is how good are we at noticing that this is an opportunity? And do we have a mechanism in place for making decisions when one of those opportunities arises? And the people in, 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 my, in, in NGOs who, are, who notice critical junctures are the humanitarians. That's what they do. They notice a flood or an earthquake or a, or a drought. And they have a whole process in place for responding to that, for mobilizing resources and all the rest of it. The people working in campaigns sometimes get it. They know, they know that elections are good good opportunities, that that's when people are willing to think about policy. Long-term development, I think, struggle because long-term development are long-term and they tend to have plans and find it difficult to adjust to these critical junctures. So the book is arguing you need to actually bring in some of the ideas from elsewhere about how you do that. Are there some examples of organizations or individuals who you see as kind of successfully influencing change right now and kind of following the approach that you highlighted in your book? Um, Any signs of positive deviance. I mean, you mentioned possibly disaster response or some other campaigns, but I was just wondering if you see any other organizations that are kind of stars in this area. I mean, lots of stars at the grassroots level, and they're, they're, they're going on all the time, whether there's aid in, the, aid in, in play or not. So, so, you know, there's too many to talk about in terms of social movements working all over the world. At a sort of higher level, um, I guess, things like, you know, things I've been involved with in, in, around value chains, trying to get progress on the working conditions of people who are producing goods for supermarkets and, and uh, clothes stores in the, in the West. Some interesting, I think the, the movement on climate change has been really interesting in terms of new, new players coming in, people like the insurance companies coming in and saying, actually, there's a business case for, for moving on climate change and creating new coalitions and new possibilities. So I think that's another example of, of progress in recent years. In terms of more classic campaigns, I think um, the arms trade treaty campaign was really phenomenal in terms of going from nothing to a global arms trade treaty in really quite a short time through classic campaigning, power analysis, identifying leaders, getting the right messengers to take the message out to people, using critical junctures, all that stuff, complete repertoire used by the arms trade treaty. And then a recent one, which is, I think, maybe less prominent in the US, but but very prominent in Europe, is around the financial crisis where um, some campaigners dusted off an old idea, the Tobin tax, of a small tax on uh, international currency transactions. And in the, uh, uh, straight after the 2008 financial crisis, they relaunched it as the Robin Hood tax and got enormous traction because the banks were very unpopular, governments were desperate for new sources of, re- of revenue, and suddenly the idea of a tax on banks, a small tax on banks to pay for good things, became very popular. Ten countries in the EU are currently finalising uh, this introduction of a new tax, which in historic terms, new taxes are a very big deal. I like to compare it with the income tax, which was introduced during the Napoleonic Wars as a very small temporary tax to pay for the war, which would go away very quickly. And that was 19th, early 19th century. Hmm. And we're still paying you know, quite a lot. So big taxes are, are, are big deals. Okay, well, I just wanted to end kind of with uh, what's, so what's next for you? I mean, you've, uh, with this book, you've already seen some praise and a lot of uh, endorsement from many in- in people. So what do you do with this now? How do you operationalize what you're talking about? What well, that's your- the word. So the word is operationalized because I think I'd, I probably should stop writing these big books for a bit. People might start getting bored with them. And I want to go and work with a, at a couple of country level sort of programs and just basically try it out. You know, see what aspects of this stuff make sense, what aspects don't. So, yeah, one, if I ever finish doing this book tour, um, I will um, talk to some of our country programs and say, would you like me to be you know, a critical friend and come in and, and work with you on, on, on your program and then see what, what of this actually sticks. And that would be 
a blessed relief from just writing these big helicopter stuff. Well, we are very curious to, uh, to hear what you learn, and we'll be following you, uh, probably on your blog as well. You'll be blogging about this. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, just to remind everyone that uh, this is Duncan Green, and his newest book is How Change Happens. You can download it for free at how-change-happens.com. Um, so thank you very much. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you very much. Okay. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.